Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to episode 3 of the second series of From Page to Practice. Today's book is The Lost Girls by Charlotte Woolley. Having covered Boys Don't Try in the first series of the podcast, which works very well in partnership with this book, I'm really looking forward to covering similar issues from the other side of the fence. We have a great selection of contributions today, so we'll get straight in and hear from Charlotte herself about her book. Hi, this is Charlotte Woolley. I'm author of The Lost Girls, which I wrote because I've been working at a girls' school now for 10 years, and It seems that even in the last few years, gender and particularly girls' perception of gender has changed pretty dramatically, actually, since I first started there. And it definitely seems like gender has become more polarised and our ideas about femininity and masculinity have become more and more the polar opposites of one another instead of like many of us might remember when we were children of not having quite such firm boundaries between gender roles. I also felt like the terms themselves, gender, sex and sexuality, were becoming more and more entwined and I kind of wanted to unpick them a little bit and think about how they do cross over and also, more importantly, how how they don't. I really strongly believe that gender is constructed, um, as Judith Butler says, it's, it's a social performance, a social construction and I think a lot of that is started incredibly young. Um, when children are just babies and it really continues all the way through into adulthood and can have quite a damaging effect. So I was really hoping that teachers and school leaders would be able to read this Um, and it's designed to be very practical. It's designed so that there's there's a bit of theory at the beginning about kind of where we get our gender stereotypes from um, and look at evolutionary biology theory and the fact that really it is very much theoretical and it's very much built on 19th century science which was really fascinating to research that those ideas um, of the sort of male hunter-gatherer and the female nurturer don't really have a lot of scientific basis behind them necessarily, certainly not enough to call them absolute scientific fact. And then after that, there's very practical suggestions. Um, Each chapter kind of takes an aspect of the curriculum, um, whether that's a subject area like English, science or um, the arts, or whether it's um, looking at whole school issues uh, like uh, RSE, or whether it's thinking about kind of the way that we do extracurricular activities for different students. Um, And in each of those, I give suggestions or ideas about what you could look at in terms of auditing your curriculum and your extracurricular activities to see kind of how you're supporting students in their understanding of gender and feminism. And also to think about kind of next, next steps, because I like reading CPD books that have a really practical strategy that I can then take away and put into practice. And that's what I was trying to create. So my goal really is that you can take this book and have a look at it and think, how does a feminist approach where we value the traditionally feminine and where we also tell girls that it's okay to be whatever they want to be, and how does that 
approach work really well for girls and boys and it, it works really well I think as a nice partner piece actually to um boys don't try which takes the sort of the, the tender masculine approach and I, I think that's a really valuable one from the male perspective but also to think about the way that that female qualities are not necessarily always valued in the most explicit ways and that aspect of feminism is really interesting to me I think the other thing was that I've had a lot of conversations, particularly with younger students, about this idea that feminism isn't necessary anymore because we have equality. And when you talk to them about it, really what it turns out they often mean is we have an Equal Pay Act. And it's a very narrow definition of what feminism can and should be doing. And I think we need a much broader definition um, explicitly with students and to really draw their attention to the fact that we don't have sex equality at all and that if you look at um the most prestigious or the most well-paid roles in societies they, they tend to be overwhelmingly male dominated and when you look at the stay-at-home parents it tends to be female dominated and there's lots and lots of different reasons for that and it's worth having all of those discussions really openly with students so that they can think about those choices they want to make in their adult lives we do careers discussions with students for example but we don't really do life design discussions and I think that's a really interesting thing to think about because a lot of the the conversations that certainly the older students that I work with sometimes have are quite interesting when they're talking about careers and a lot of them already are talking about family time and working part-time and being a full-time carer and because I work with primary girls I often feel like that feels like their default because that's often the model that many of them experience even the ones who come from non-two-gendered parent households without just mum and dad as sort of the, the stereotype even those who who have something different often feel like that's that's the norm that they're aiming for in their adult life and that means that their role is going to be something that that they have to work part-time and, and look after their children part-time and that's a really valid choice but it feels like it's not always necessarily a choice that they're making it's more an assumption that that's how things are even when they say the opposite they say that they you know they're, they're, they say that they're feminist or they say that they're equal and they they want to have the options what they're actually talking about in terms of practice is not necessarily always supporting that directly and so there's, there's some in the book as well about how to have those kind of conversations with students um in lots of different curriculum areas but particularly in sort of the whole school aspects um thinking about asking students to understand themselves as male or female in different ways and to think about how that overlaps with their gender identities and what gender is expected of them in society and I think it's it's interesting to kind of pick those apart a little bit as I've done in the first section. What I would love as the outcome for this book really is that teachers and school leaders read it and think about gender and sex and, and to some extent sexuality as as a way in a way that they haven't perhaps before to think about whether they really do promote gender equality in their schools um, or perhaps to check their unconscious bias and to think about the ways that as schools we often promote a far more traditional um, gender spectrum than, than we might perhaps want to if we were really thinking consciously about it. I'd really like teachers to be able to think about some really practical strategies that are in each chapter about how to address this in their 
curriculum areas and across the whole school. And to think then a little bit as well as school leaders about the wider school experience for their staff. There is, there's been great work done in lots of respects by groups like Women Ed, and this sort of develops that a little bit further as well, looking at some of the ways that modelling this gender equality and thinking about what do we give our staff and what are we promoting subconsciously, therefore, to our students every day that they walk into our building? Is it a place where we see that teachers are predominantly one sex or another, that one subject is dominated by another? Is it somewhere where we give out messages in each subject that both sexes are equally welcome and equally valued in our subjects? Is it somewhere also where we celebrate the fact that there are some differences for various reasons, a lot of them social, and we can't necessarily turn our backs entirely on socialisation of gender? It's so ingrained that we have to accept some of it, but also, I think, challenge the fact that traditionally female feminine characteristics are held by everybody. We all think that being nurturing and being kind, traditionally feminine characteristics, are incredibly important. But how do we actually live that value in a, in a school where often the more traditionally masculine values of academic achievement and confidence and sometimes border, borderline arrogance to be honest are also kind of praised and held up and we want those individuals qualities perhaps sometimes more than the collaborative qualities how are we blending those two so really that's that's kind of my aim with the book and I think or it changed my practice certainly to research it in the, in the way that I did and to think about it in that detail and to think about it from that whole school perspective as well um, and I really hope that some people who are reading it are feeling the same kind of empowerment to bring a more feminist education to everyone who are who's in our classrooms. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. A great overview of the book from Charlotte, which really demonstrates exactly why she wrote it and what the aims are of the book. Next, we'll hear from Jess Hayes. The fear of failing to be perfect or excellent is so intense that it becomes a symbol of the self. That is the line in Lost Girls that struck a chord with me. I remember when I was younger at school, battling these inner demons myself that made me want to do everything absolutely perfectly, even when it resulted in my learning being hindered. This has been an arduous journey to try and overcome, and I will admit that even now as a teacher, this is still an issue that I face. However, now I'm seeing it rearing its ugly head in my own students as well. So I'm trying to make sure that myself and my students have strategies to try and overcome perfectionism. Whilst it isn't always a negative trait, it can hinder learning. Something I try and encourage even more so now after reading The Lost Girls is the art of correction and mistakes. We often do live models in class, whether this be whole paragraphs, analytical comments, writer's intentions, anything like this, so we can show students what they should be aiming for. I actively now try and make mistakes in my work, cross them out, change colours, show them that making mistakes and proofreading your work is okay, and in fact, it's actually better. It shows that you have taken the time to craft and adapt your work, showing your care and your thought process, and making mistakes and corrections is not a negative thing. 
I know it isn't always that easy. So other strategies we use in class are things like mini whiteboards in lessons, writing in pencil, because I found that students fearing that they can't erase a mistake leads them to not wanting to commit to an answer. So these are two really easy, simple wins that allow our perfectionists in the class to take chances and to make mistakes. Then from there, this is a springboard to build from to hopefully further them with the confidence to make mistakes in exams or in assessments or just generally in life, knowing that something won't happen if they make these mistakes. And in fact, their work will be crafted to a more sophisticated level. When I read The Lost Girls, that chapter on perfectionism really resonated with me. And I feel like if we have any students that are perfectionists in our school, it is really something that we should be reading through and trying to think of these strategies to help and aid them with that process. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. A useful reflection from Jess focusing in on perfectionism and a really practical takeaway from the Lost Girls. Learning that mistakes are not the end of the world is such an important lesson for our young people and something many adults would do well to realise too. Charlotte's mention of how often this carries into adult life with many women only applying for jobs where they meet all of the criteria as opposed to men who will often apply when only meeting around 60% of these. The perfectionist behaviours she discusses are interesting to look out for. Procrastination, excessive neatness, redoing things, handwriting, spending too long on homework, inability to make simple decisions and inability to write or speak without rehearsal. And as I read these, I could often relate them to behaviours I see in the classroom. Next, we are going to hear from Lizzie Swan. It's great to have Lizzie on after she spoke at Teach Meet MFL Icons on teacher wellbeing. Hi, my name is Lizzie Swan. I work with schools to retain their best staff and teachers to sustain their well-being through coaching and consultancy. I've been a teacher for 18 years with 12 years in senior leadership and latterly as a head teacher. My work is embedded in the principles of positive psychology and I'm fulfilling a long-held ambition by studying for my master's in psychology this year. You can connect with me on Twitter at PegsUK or over on Instagram at the underscore square underscore pegs underscore education. So I'm here today to talk about Charlotte Woolley's The Lost Girls. Uh, In terms of my favourite part of my book, well, spoilt for choice. Um, I bought the book for one of my closest friends who's a trust lead for English and I bought another copy for my mother-in-law who was a drama teacher for many, many years as well as a copy for myself. I feel like Charlotte articulates all of the feelings and dinner party arguments that I've had over the years about feminism and about education, but she articulates them so wisely and says so many things that I just want to commit every single word that she's written to memory. After reading the book, I felt enriched, wiser and emotionally lighter for reading Lost Girls. And conversely, I felt found. The chapter that resonated most strongly with me, both professionally and personally, is chapter 14, Overcoming Perfectionism. This chapter resonated with me not only as a leader, a teacher, but also as a parent, and it reminded me very much as the pupil that I was, and now am as a postgraduate student, and also most clearly in my work in the wellbeing arena as a coach. 
trying to be all things to all people and seeking that external validation to fulfill that sense of worth and maintain that state of high-functioning perfectionism and having that impossibly high set of expectations accompanied by that critical inner narrator It echoed for me that sense of imposter syndrome that I've experienced not only firsthand in my career, but also that I'm supporting teachers now in terms of strategies to combat in order to sustain their well-being. In chapter 14, Charlotte highlights these perfectionist behaviours and perfectionist thinking, and she offers tangible strategies for challenging perfectionism. The perfectionist behaviours and thinking that resonated with me through my work with pupils and teachers, particularly is this sense of catastrophizing, the you know, this inability to live up to these internalised standards, and also the sense of procrastinization. Why start if it's never going to be good enough? And before reading Charlotte's book, I'd never really realised that procrastination was a sense of perfectionism. I'd never married the two together. But of course, If it's not going to be good enough, what's the point in starting? So let's just delay the inevitable. So in terms of what I factored into my coaching, Charlotte's strategies to challenge perfectionism and the ones that I've used to the best effect include setting clear and realistic expectations. I use particularly smart targets. I've always used those throughout my leadership career, particularly as a head teacher, but also as a middle leader as well. And again, that's a clear strategy for supporting anybody to overcome the sense of perfectionism. But recasting with positive language, overcoming that sense of catastrophization. Exposure practice is another strategy that Charlotte's found works for her and she suggests that we can use to challenge perfectionism. And empathy, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and walk alongside them. Charlotte talks also about suggesting that pupils, staff and ourselves that we try using low stakes testing but particularly that we use low stakes skills and this is echoed through positive psychology and the idea of using short wins and Charlotte talks about how she uses knitting and the idea of learning a new skill. For myself I used to cross stitch and also I've used You know, some people might do gardening, but for me, I just try and keep a pot of basil alive or one cheese plant in my house. And it's that idea of something low stakes so that if you have those short wins and you learn that concept of, you know, learning a new skill, it can hopefully cross over into other areas, that sense of success. For me, this book has really helped me reframe my narrative, given me a greater understanding of how I learn and how I can best support myself, the teachers I work with to sustain their well-being, and ultimately my daughter, my children, and the children that I teach. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. It's interesting that Lizzie picks the same chapter that we've just discussed with Jess, but discusses it from another angle. A really enjoyable contribution to listen to, and it nicely demonstrates the whole point of From Page to Practice, how we can all read the same words, but apply them to our own lives and practice in different ways. Next, we're hearing from Jill Berry with her thoughts. Hello, I'm Jill Berry, a former head, now working as a leadership consultant and an education commentator. In my 30-year career, I worked in six different schools, three of which were all girls' schools, including the schools where I was deputy and then later head. 
And in 2009, I was very fortunate to be elected president of the Girls' Schools Association. So I've always had a particular interest in how best we can support the girls of today and prepare them to take advantage of the opportunities and address the challenges when they become the women of tomorrow. I read The Lost Girls because of this interest and I enjoyed it very much and tweeted extracts from it. I was particularly impressed with how convincingly Charlotte argued that changing the narrative around what it means to be feminine or masculine is critical to creating a more positive society from which all genders will benefit. She explains in a clear and compelling way what feminism is and how it can be misunderstood. She asserts the importance of respecting people's choices and fitting young people for a future in which doors will be open to them and they will be able to pursue the course which is right for them, not simply to conform to others' expectations or to meet insurmountable barriers, whatever their gender identity. She wants every young person to be able to find and use their voice and I think this is such an important message. Her suggestions for how to conduct a curriculum audit are very useful for schools, I think, not only on account of issues around gender, but also in the current climate where we're increasingly aware of the part a commitment to diversity and inclusion can play in our schools to take into account the messages our curriculum sends out about ethnicity, sexuality, disability and religious and cultural perspectives. Charlotte talks about staff, parents and the wider community within which our schools sit, in addition to how we can best serve the student population. I like the fact that she goes on to examine the topic of gender through the lens of different subject specialisms. Like me, Charlotte's an English specialist, but she explores a wide range of subject areas and her discussion of each is well referenced and fully researched. Charlotte talks in detail about mental health and well-being about avoiding perfectionism and navigating stress, about the need for courage, about leadership, and the importance of embracing flexible working practices in our schools. So this is a comprehensive, extremely thoughtful and well-balanced treatment of a wide range of issues pertinent to education and to society. And I love this quotation. A feminist education benefits everyone. It empowers women to step forward and take their equal place in the workplace and at home. It empowers men to do the same. I strongly recommend this book as excellent reading for all genders and for anyone who is committed to modelling a society within which everybody can flourish. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Jill gives a great overview of the book and has mentioned a number of chapters that listeners to this podcast may be interested in checking out. The quote at the end rounds it off quite nicely too. Thanks Jill. Next up we're hearing from Damon. My name is Damon Hesford and I'm a secondary school English teacher at a school in Bolton and I'm going to talk about the lost girls and the feminist revolution that is needed in education. I think the title itself is really interesting. The book focuses on women And naturally, it talks about the role of women in schools, the way we teach young girls, the curriculum content, the aspirations we set forward for women, and obviously the role role that teachers and staff can play in helping young women through this secondary school experience. 
which is kind of in the main part where it focused that and perhaps sixth form. But what I found was that it wasn't just necessarily women and girls that we could look at. It was the whole spectrum of underrepresented groups in our education or undersupported groups in our education system. Um, so I think the messages that Willie talks about, you could apply to people of colour, to people with different sexual orientations and things whereby representation hasn't been as prominent and as powerful <coughs> as it should have been uh, and as it should be right now. So I think a lot of what, you know, you'll see in, and read in The Lost Girls is, I think, applicable to underrepresented groups in general. And I think that move towards a more representative and equal curriculum for all demographics is something that we should strive for. As an English teacher, I found the study that um, she made of English as a subject was really interesting and the most relevant to me, obviously. And I thought some of the things that were problems are problems that English teachers cannot fix at the surface. So the texts that we study are male-dominated and they are provided at examination level by an external agency and so we have little or no power but what I thought based on the book was well how can I bring those women you know more central to our study make those women you know come to life a little bit more and give stories of women and voices of women more prominence in my classroom you know and so that they don't become drowned out by you know that old cliche of dead white men I thought as well what was really interesting was the, you know, for me was how we can then start to trickle down into key stage three in an English department or into, you know, where we do have choice and start to think about, well, what is our excuse at key stage three? You know, do we need to just go Steinbeck, Shakespeare, Willie Russell, Arthur Miller, et cetera, et cetera, or can we start to look at the work done by women? and give those voices a lot more prominence and give those voices, a, you know, a chance to have that impact on the women that we teach. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I thought that idea of a more inclusive and a more representative curriculum is critical, but I also think about the way in which we teach the subject is critical. Um, how we study themes in literature texts, for example, and how we look at, say, masculinity in Shakespeare's work, you know, that it, thinking, what am I perpetuating here? What am I, um, what message am I guilty of sending out to the students in my class, both male and female, about women and about the role of women and the role of men in relation to women, for example? Um, I think that was really interesting. And it's something that I think isn't an instant fix. I think it's something that I need to keep looking at, keep working on, keep striving towards being better with. Um, I thought as well the idea of aspiration was really um, interesting and the fact that women, oh sorry, I, I, that young girls, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll start again. I thought the idea of aspiration was really interesting as well in that young girls traditionally outperform uh, boys at key stage four, but then that doesn't ever seem to translate into professional 
um, positions. You know, they're getting better at GCSE results. Why are they not getting better employment opportunities? And I think, you know, whilst we cannot fix a broken society immediately, what we can do is encourage girls to be aspirational, encourage girls to demand and expect the high paying jobs in the lucrative positions in the best companies in the world. And so I've tried, especially last year with a group of really, you know, high achieving, high ability students who could go on to open all the doors to the best colleges, universities in the world that to for them, for those girls to expect and demand more of their future and simply not sit back and allow things to continue the way they continue. Um, and so I think kind of my main takeaways from the, the book were about what can I do to ensure that the young women I teach leave feeling empowered, inspired, represented, represented, equal? And I think that's critical. What can I do to make sure my the girls I teach are feeling equal in my classroom, but in our school and then into the future? And then also what can I do to make sure that a curriculum is more representative for our women, both in terms of content and themes of literature texts, but also in terms of the faces and the voices that they're seeing and hearing. Um, I think it's critical that you see the people that most closely represent you so that you feel, from my point of view as an English teacher, that people like you can write novels and people like you can write plays and people like you can be remembered for centuries after. And I don't think that the girls I teach really have that experience right now when they see so many <clears throat> so many people who are remembered as geniuses and artists and talents and great thinkers and and they're all men and that isn't right and I need to do my little bit to redress that balance so that my girls understand they can be the greatest playwright of all time and their gender isn't an obstacle you're listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page practice podcast thank you damon some really important reflections especially around representation and making sure girls get to see that their gender is not an obstacle to achievement next up is melissa Hi, my name is Melissa Marsh and I'm currently a Key Stage 4 coordinator in English and I've been teaching since 2016. My Twitter handle is Tweet, Teach, Repeat and I am going to be talking about the Lost Girls, Why Feminist Revolution in Education Benefits Everyone by Charlotte Willey and what how that's impacted my practice. Now, I read this book during lockdown and I just really found it food for thought in terms of the way that we teach and the way that we approach girls within schools not just within our subjects but um all round I think although very important for those who are working in single sex schools I think it's more important for those in co-educational settings as that is where the gaps between the ways in which boys and girls are treated are more prevalent having come from being educated myself in an all-girls setting to then working in all boys and then in mixed you can really see the difference in attitudes that um, girls have in those different settings um so the few things that sort of really jumped out at me to begin with were 
the idea of where are all the women and the promotion and the checking diversity and the role models that you're promoting within school, both within subjects and also within, um, you know, the school as a whole. And the fact that girls' identities are troublingly narrow and the element that really struck me and really sort of made me think about the way I deal with pupils in my classroom was the anxiety surrounding the perfect girl the kind of the good girl um who just get on with it stereotype and how how often as Charlotte says in her book they are sat next to the child with bad behavior to keep them on track they're the ones who are told to tour around the schools they're the ones who end up being the buddy and how this can be difficult for them after a while um, and particularly think about how I was supporting those girls uh, with, you know, certain amounts of perfectionism and anxiety within my subject, which is English. So the three things that I really took away from the book and thought about um, in terms of my own teaching was this idea of, for me, setting time limit for presentational aspects of their work. So although, yes, work should be presented, that is not why we're doing it and the emphasis on you know perfectly highlighting perfectly written tipexed out work is not what we're we're aiming for we're aiming for the work itself and trying to pass get get over some of those um issues surrounding that practicing editing and allowing things not to be perfect and modeling that behavior so modeling the editing process showing them that it's okay to cross it out and that it doesn't always have to be perfectly neat and perfectly presented and also modeling how to make mistakes and how to get over the mistakes particularly in the written word if we're thinking of applying this particularly to the subject of English um the most important thing I found for this book and the way way that I used it in particular is the way it's gone overall approaches to it and sort of the background and the kind of research but also within that subject specific element so you can dip in and out depending on the subjects that you teach and I just thought it was a fantastic book and I've recommended it to a lot of people particularly people who've who've read Boys Don't Try I feel like it's a brilliant companion text to that to really think about how we are deconstructing gender and the way that we impose stereotypes within our teaching and within the school environment. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I can relate to some of what Melissa says at the start, having worked in both an all-girls school as well as currently being in a mixed school. I also found that the good girl label was very relatable in some aspects, and I really want to consider how I'm going to help these girls in my own practice. Our next contribution comes from Rachel, who's returning to the podcast. Hi, my name is Rachel Ball, Assistant Principal in charge of teaching and learning in Salford. You can follow me on Twitter at Mrs Ball AP. Back in July, I finished reading the brilliant book The Lost Girls by Charlotte Woolley. And it's one of those books which has just had a huge impact on me. Sometimes you read a book which just immediately changes your practice. And this was one of those for me. So I'm a huge fan of the brilliant Boys Don't Try by Matt Pinkett and Mark Roberts and can totally see the rationale behind their book. But in the introduction, Charlotte makes it clear that we've still got a real need to focus on girls in education, despite their seemingly better academic performance. 
Um, even in 2020, we've still got a glass ceiling for women in the world of work. There's still a gender gap in terms of work and family life. And Charlotte summarises, for all the progress made between the suffragettes in the early 20th century and the mid-1970s, we seem to have slowed to a crawl when it comes to changing the narrative about gender. Too many girls are still pushed into positions that restrict them, limit their opportunities and quite honestly trap them into a spiral of anxiousness because of the conflicting messages that society is giving them. And that really struck a chord with me. Charlotte's introduction is a real call to arms for all educators about addressing some of this imbalance in society through looking at our curriculum choices, our language, our biases and how we can empower girls to find their own voices and identities. Uh, this was something that really spoke um, to me and my friend Katie as we just started our blog and we felt that even though we were really small voices that no one seemed to be listening to, we still felt we wanted to share something that even small voices can have an impact. In the blog post I wrote on the Lost Girls, I talk about its impact on me as a history teacher um, and then its impact on me as a leader as well. Um, so in terms of its impact on me as a history teacher, there were several aspects that I took away from the Lost Girls. Charlotte writes a detailed chapter about extended writing, which is something which is obviously absolutely fundamental to being a good historian. Um, she talks about the repercussions for girls about a struggle with perfectionism or getting it wrong. She says that girls can struggle emotionally to accept feedback and may also struggle with the cognitive load that's required in extended writing. So from um, reading Charlotte's book, um, I then came up with some key strategies um, that I took away and some of which I already used, but maybe didn't use consistently. And some of them that I didn't use before that Charlotte mentions that I perhaps needed to try. The first was a repeated planning structure. So to help reduce the cognitive load and ensure that my students know that certain types of questions will require certain formats, um, then students can focus on the knowledge and content that is needed rather than wondering how am I going to start this answer, how many paragraphs does it need? So with repeated planning, they can understand that before they start writing. As history teachers, I think we are quite good at this, but I felt that it was worth reinforcing. Uh, graphic organisers can help there, maybe some sort of visual cue to remind pupils of success criteria, structure strips, which can be used as a form of scaffolding, um, and obviously removed over time when students' confidence has been built up. Charlotte also suggests backward planning, using a model answer to determine what the plan would have been and to help pupils have clear expectations of the level of detail, vocabulary required, etc. And I found tasks um, like this really useful in this type of thinking. So giving pupils a model answer and asking them to critique it, um, to apply the success criteria to the answer, to pick out key vocabulary that they might use in their answer, etc. Charlotte made me think about using model answers a lot more before I ask students to write, um, whereas I perhaps would have done it as a follow-up task when I was giving feedback. Charlotte also recommends time for planning, which is something I know that I need to do more of. Allowing students to plan in pairs and then share their ideas is something which I know would boost confidence. And similarly, allowing students to see me plan and write, where I model my thinking and share my own frustrations, is something that I know I need to do more of. For students who struggle with perfectionism, perhaps seeing their teacher not get it right first time can be really powerful. 
Charlotte also highlights the process of going from plan to paragraph, which is a step that I think I often skipped. Um, so she says, we often assume it's a case of putting the plan into sentences rather than explicitly modelling the shift from notes to writing academically. And I think that's where an I do, we do, you do approach, um, as outlined by Greg Thornton brilliantly in his blog, um, is a really good strategy to use here. Um, my other takeaways were about making my feedback really specific and when it comes to revision, ensuring that I focus girls in particular away from writing things out multiple times or doing lots of highlighting, which we know does very little to help students, but girls seem to enjoy and focusing them instead on strategies like summarising or low stakes retrieval quizzes. The other focus the book gave me was in thinking about curriculum. So although Charlotte doesn't include history as a specific chapter, there was loads to think about. We need to ensure as historians that girls are exposed to female historians and allowed to see that history is not just a subject for old white men. Um, and we also need to make sure that where we include scholarship in our schemes of learning, that we highlight the work of historians like Hallie Rubenhold, Fern Riddell, uh, Jasmina Ramirez, Miranda Kaufman, amongst many others. We need to ensure that we get women's place within the curriculum right. We need to, as Charlotte says, challenge the idea that women in history were rubbish. Get away from pigeonholing women as victims. Charlotte also writes an excellent chapter about oracy and the, se the section on classroom conversations I found really helpful. Um, she says, everyone, both boys and girls, benefits when whole class discussion is academic, thoughtful and collaborative. And she gives some brilliant practical advice about how we can do this. So through the use of no hands up questioning, giving students a structure for talk. And I know as an introvert myself, I struggled at times with speaking in class. So one idea Charlotte also suggests is to make questions as low stakes as possible and to encourage thinking and planning time where the questions do carry more weight. And this is where formats like Talk Like a Historian, which Karen Knight produced, um, are really, really beneficial. Um, these help students craft their answers more carefully, and they also scaffold discussion and debate. And I think this will really help build students' confidence, particularly with girls. We also need to think about challenging sexist language in the classroom. So we live in a society where even very recently we've seen our Prime Minister calling other leaders in our country girly swats. Um, or the Prime Minister David ex-Prime Minister David Cameron telling the Shadow Treasury Chief Secretary Angela Eagle to calm down, dear, in the House of Commons. Um, this is completely unacceptable language um, that we might see replicated in our classrooms. And so it really needs challenging, um, not just on our classrooms, but in our corridors as well. It really made me think about my own biases. So am I equally as quick to call out someone telling a boy to man up as I am when someone might be called a pussy or when I hear phrases like, don't be such a girl? We absolutely have got a responsibility to call out language like this and to model the language that we expect. Charlotte shares a really helpful list of forms of sexist language and harassment, as well as some really practical advice about how to challenge it, from questioning um, and confronting the language to using phrases like, this school doesn't tolerate sexist language like this. And I found that format really helpful. The last area for personal reflection for me was around Charlotte's section in the book on leadership. So as well as sharing the statistics about the lack of female leadership in education and the barriers that women often face, Charlotte outlines what female leadership is and she gives advice about the positive traits associated with feminist leadership. 
too, too often it seems that we navigate uh, pr presumptions about leadership being aligned with male characteristics or seeing leaders as individual visionaries. And what I've taken away from this section on the book is that feminist leadership is about authenticity, humility, collaboration and kindness. And these are all characteristics that I work on having on a daily basis. And I believe, like Charlotte, has real strength in schools. Humility is something that I've been thinking about in particular a lot recently. The best leaders I've worked with are confident and wise, but also know they cannot and do not do the job on their own. They recognise that they can fail and are never so arrogant as to not see others as part of their success. Charlotte sums this section up really well. For me, this humble leadership is encapsulated in the public eye by Barack and, Barack and Michelle Obama. Both appear completely confident in their own position. They are never arrogant or self-aggrandizing, but generous in their praise of others. And this is the kind of leader that I really want to be. I want to continue to be authentic, to have my own voice, be confident enough to not feel like I have to fit in, knowing that I will fail, but I will learn as I do so. I want that for the students that I teach as well, for the girls in my school to know that feminist leadership is possible. Charlotte goes on to discuss the complexities behind the juggle of family life and career, something that I know only too well about. But she really gives hope about more family-friendly career possibilities. And um, I know that it's really refreshing to hear women like Kat Howard and Emma Turner talking about more flexible working and education, um, something which even a few years ago when I had my first child, I'm not sure was as possible. So overall, I think this book is amazing. I learned so much reading it. I've been so challenged. I feel completely reinvigorated about having the highest expectations for all the students I teach. Um, I'm going to be ordering more copies for our CPD library and sharing this with our staff in school. Um, and as a mother of a girl also, it spoke to me as a parent. Um, I know that I can do more to challenge stereotypes with my daughter. Charlotte ends by arguing so passionately that a feminist education says to everyone, you matter. And how could I not want that? You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Rachel. A contribution which really fits the bill of From Page to Practice, as you've given some really clear direction on how this book has influenced your work on a daily basis. Something that Rachel mentioned was use of language. This is something we can all easily influence, and although this was something I already had on my radar, I'm going to try and pay more conscious attention to it in future. Our final contribution today is from another returning contributor, Anne-Louise. Hi, my name is Anne-Louise Jordan, and I'm the deputy head of a British school in Madrid. Now, The Lost Girls by Charlotte M. Willey truly redefined me as a teacher. It is steeped in research and reflection and every paragraph, every detail makes you think. It makes you look inwards. And as I read it, after 11 years of being a teacher, I found so many things that I was just not doing right. So to begin with, in the first few chapters, what Charlotte does is she looks at science and she provides the fact the fact is science is sexist she writes about the sexism found in science with reference to scientific evidence published published in 
typical women's magazines such as Playboy, um, with headings such as Do men cheat on their women? The science says yes. So if science is sexist, then so are we, because most of us rely on science. We listen to the scientists. Government advisors should listen to scientists. Therefore, it's extremely damaging to society and even us as educators. To know it is sexist automatically made me think to myself, am I really certain of the things I believe to be true? She has lots of wonderful quotes all the way through the book. Uh, One of them by Plato says, if women are expected to do the same work as men, we must teach them the same things. So then she goes on to talk about how girls and boys are socialised to behave in in a certain way. Whilst I knew this, what she does so cleverly is put that in the classroom. So I'm a feminist and what I thought a pretty good one. The the first chapter discusses the way girls behave and the way they achieve and even the way they are seen by educators. There are the nice girls and the good girls in our classrooms and this is where I stopped in my tracks. Charlotte writes about the girls who help out, who are responsible and who we use to sort out some kind of failing behaviour system that we have in class. I know now that I'm guilty of doing this, I know that I'm guilty of using these girls to sort out my behaviour management. Um, I sit them with the boys, I do boy girl, boy girl, boy girl. Uh, even sit them with unruly girls in the hope that they'll learn from these nice girls. Um, then, then came the second blow and I know that I've praised the good boy and the nice boy because I know that it's a behaviour that needs to be encouraged. <sighs> What's wrong with that is that I wasn't doing the same for the nice girls and the good girls because it was expected. So that for me was, that told me that I was failing the girls. Another wonderful quote, um, teach her that the idea of gender roles is absolute nonsense. Do not ever tell her that she should or should not do something because she is a girl. Because you are a girl is never a reason for anything. Ever. That quote by Chimamanda Gozi Adichie is so powerful and to read that and think okay when have I used this in my classroom okay thankfully never but it's embedded in our curriculum the very fact that in the secondary schools they have PE for boys and PE for girls that's telling them They're just not good enough to compete together. And that was in Charlotte's book. Very clearly, segregation exists all the way through school. So we need to tackle this. We need to stop separating girls. We need to stop 
stunting their intellectual and physical growth. We need to we need to take away the ceiling. The ceiling should never be there in school. So for me personally, through my own curriculum planning and leadership, I will make sure these conversations are had. I will call out those people that say boys sit with girls and boy heavy classes and girl heavy classes. It should not matter. It should not matter. If you have a boy heavy class and that's why they're a bit unruly or a girl heavy class and that's why they're very well behaved, it shouldn't matter. So for me, I will be calling out these conversations and I would never have done that if I hadn't have read this book. So I encourage everyone to pick up this book and read it and reflect and change. And I hope you've enjoyed my review and have fun. See you later. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Anne-Louise. Your point about praising the nice boys but not the girls with the same behaviours is such a wake-up call for me as someone that feels very strongly about the issues raised in this book. You're right that we need to be calling out these conversations in order to make change. The next episode of From Page to Practice will be on A Quiet Education by Jamie Tom. I'm looking forward to hearing from Jamie all about the book and as per usual I'm still interested in hearing from more of you about your reflections and most importantly the practical applications of what you've read. Please do get in touch if you'd like to take part. Remember your support in the form of subscribing, sharing and reviewing the podcast is always greatly appreciated as is your support via the buy me a coffee link in the description if you're feeling extra generous. I look forward to hearing from you at pagepracticepod on Twitter at Page Practice Podcast on Instagram and from Page to Practice on Facebook and using hashtag Page Practice Podcast on any of these platforms. Until the next episode, have a great couple of weeks. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag Page Practice Podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.